Our Father, we're thankful that you have provided our salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful that you have seen to inscripturate your word and have protected the text of scripture down through the centuries so that we can say with Paul that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The man of God may be thoroughly, might become mature, having been thoroughly equipped to every good work. We thank thee for the necessity and for the sufficiency of the word of God. In Christ's name, amen. Um, just to review one of the, the, the basic idea behind this uh, framework approach that we're using in this class, remember it's, uh, it's a threefold thing. And the uh, book of Ecclesiastes says the threefold cord is not quickly broken. And the threefold uh, nature of what we're trying to do is we are trying to set forward the main steps in the biblical story, biblical history, in sequence. Second thing we're going to we're doing is we're presenting Bible doctrine, but stated such that it's linked to these great events of biblical history, and that's to prevent abstract theology. The theology came to us in historical situations. God didn't reveal a theoretical textbook. And while systematics is important, and we're not diminishing that, in fact, we're substantiating the fact that the Bible is a system. The scriptures set forward a rational system. And just like unbelief has a certain rationality, sort of pseudo-rationality, but has a, it has a rationale behind it. So that's the second of the threefold chord. And the third thing that we're emphasizing is the exact opposite of whatever the Bible teaches. In other words, it's the Bible against the world system. And so we have spent time as we go through each of these events and the doctrines that these events reveal to show where unbelief strikes against that, where it protests against this. So we're always looking for the conflict and the contrast. Now, I think it's become increasingly obvious over the six years, five years that we've been doing this, uh, in just that short span of time, this country has gotten progressively more pagan. And in that time, it makes more and more sense than to approach the scriptures as we are approaching it. This is not a substitute for exegesis. This is not a substitute for systematic theology. It's not a substitute for apologetics. But it's a combination of those three items. And um, I'm going to spend time tonight showing how Paul um, worked this through in, in an actual situation. And Divine, you'll have to excuse me, but you heard this before two weeks ago. Um, the idea is that what we're doing is not something that I just made up. It's something that is, is repeatedly done in the scriptures themselves by the prophets and the apostles. And they work this way, and you can see it most clearly with Paul against the pagan environment, because they were talking against the pagan environment. In other words, the civilization in which they lived was basically antithetical to Scripture in its very structure. And so when these men went out to evangelize, when they went out with the gospel message, they knew that that gospel message could not be communicated clearly unless 
there had to be a major alteration in people's thinking. And the Bible has a word for that major alteration in thinking. It's called repentance. Unfortunately, the English word repentance has become very, very convoluted. Uh, at the beginning of this century, uh, the word repentance was almost demolished in its Christian meaning by certain groups in the Methodist tradition who had the morning bench in the front. And repentance came to mean uh, feeling sorry for your sins. Well, it may include that, but that's not what the word means. The metanoeo is meta, change, noeo, change your understanding. And it, it, it reaches far deeper than your sins. It has to do all the, way, all the way down to the nature of truth, who God is, and so on. There's got to be that repentance. Well, it can't be repentance if there's not something to change. There's got to be at least two views in order for repentance to happen because it's changing from one view to another. So if you only have one view, there's nothing to repent of. So there's got to be at least two positions. And that's why we emphasize what the Bible says and what the world says. What the Bible says here, what the world says here. So we demarcate the area of the repentance zone and show that, in fact, to move from one to the other requires us to transform. Um, as an example of the world in which we're living, in which it will be progressively impossible to use a biblical vocabulary up front and be reasonably understood, I heard, this, uh, I heard about this fellow narrating uh, his experiences in a ministry in Washington, D.C., and uh, he has a ministry, he's a Hebrew Christian, and he has a ministry of handing out um, plaques with the Ten Commandments on them to anybody he can get into their office in D.C. And he, during the course of discussing this, he narrates the following incident, and I'm just going to uh, put the microphone down by the tape recorder here for just two or three minutes, and I want you to hear uh, this thing, this incident that happened, because I think it's typifying uh, the situation in which we're now finding ourselves. One of the very first presentations of the Ten Commandments we did in Washington was to the former Secretary of the United States Senate, Kelly Johnston. One of the most powerful offices in, in, on Capitol Hill, in fact, he signs the paychecks of the Senators, so you know he's real important. And. Kelly Johnston, until his recent retirement, had one of the most beautiful offices in Washington, the stately office that was John F. Kennedy's transition office in the Capitol. Beautiful round stained glass window with the seal, the great seal of the United States with the eagle on it. And uh, there we went. He's a godly man, loves the Lord, held a packed out Bible study every week in that office, preaching the gospel to all those who work in the Senate side of the Capitol. And we went in and we made a presentation of the Ten Commandments to Kelly Johnston for his faithfulness to the Word of God. And he took those commandments and he put them right in the vestibule of that important and well-trafficked office in the United States Capitol. Virtually anybody who works there comes through those doors at some point. And he called me one day and he said, Rob, I gotta tell you what happened today. He said, we had a woman who works here on Capitol Hill, highly esteemed, very powerful, graduate of Harvard University. She's been here 25 years and she is well respected. She came into my office and she saw those Ten Commandments sitting there 
on the table. And she gravitated over toward them and she gave them a read once, twice, three times. And she said, Kelly, what are these? And he said, why, those are the Ten Commandments. And she said, I've always heard about them, but I've never seen them. So that's leadership of the nation. Now, given that as the environment, given the fact that we have a Harvard graduate, Harvard graduate being from the school that the Puritans set up to teach men how to preach the Word of God, um, and we're producing this, this kind of education, um, that's the, the target. That's our target. That's our neighbors. Those are the people in the power structure. Not only don't they want to follow the Ten Commandments, in this case, they don't even know what the Ten Commandments are. I was presenting this in Connecticut uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um, the, uh, I was emphasizing the fact that we have to, in confronting our pagan neighbors and, our, and the pagan society we live in, we, we have to follow a comp compare and contrast approach. Um, let me hook up the... Uh, overhead again here. And in this compare and, and contrast, it often involves going far back into the, into the framework we've studied. And I want to show an example of that from Paul himself. And this is uh, to show that, in fact, when we sit here and we look at what the Bible says, and what paganism says, we have to show contrast down through on many areas, and particularly the areas, the areas that this particular person or this target group is, um, is, is, is dealing with or is conscious of. And I went through Acts 17 like I'm going to now, and we got through and saw what Paul presents to the Athenians and why he presented it, because he was refuting, point by point by point, a Greek version of paganism. He said, you know, Charles, he says, it's interesting, what, after you got through doing that, he said, you know, uh, I was a missionary for many years in uh, Paraguay, and uh, my brother's still down there. Brother, and he says, I was down, for, I was 27 years in the mission field, and my brother's still down there in Paraguay, and he was narrating the following problem. Um, when he was trying to translate the Word of God into this tribal language, it's a very, very hard thing to do to pick up a vocabulary that's going to communicate. And you, you want to spend all the time it takes to learn how, what word you use to translate God. You know, the, the Roman Catholic missionaries went to Korea and picked out a word they thought represented God, and it turned out it was Satan. And they had all the Catholic Bibles translated, and they were wondering why nobody became a Christian. Uh, and then finally a Protestant uh, linguist went in there and discovered that the Jesuit priests, who had usually done a pretty good job, in this case really dropped the ball completely and fouled up the whole, fouled up the whole complete presentation of the, at least the Romanist version of Christianity. Well, he said, my brother was struggling with a problem of trying to locate where in these people's understanding 
Was there any remnant, you know, deep down, is there any remnant of divine truth? Because we all know that they're descendants from Adam and Eve. And he said they're into spiritism a lot, animism, the spirit of the trees, the spirit of the rock, the spirit of the animals. And he said we had to be very, very careful because I don't want to translate some word for God that's going to be misinterpreted as just another spirit to add to your 184 other ones. So I've got to find some sort of unique thing here. So he didn't know what he was doing. So, so what he, he said, okay, I'm going to spend however long it takes, and I'm going to find out what is their theology. So he queried them and queried them and queried them. Finally, he said, okay, I think I've got this. So what he did, he drew a picture on a piece of paper just like this. And he says, uh, he says this is your beliefs. He didn't call it paganism. He said, this was your beliefs. And he started outlining the beliefs like this. He went down one after another, listed them on the piece of paper in their language that he was translating. And then he said, now this is what the Bible says. Boom, 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 boom. Now I want you to tell me, I'm going to hand these pieces of paper out, and I want you to tell me, am I right? Is this what you, you believe? And they had to go out on a hunting expedition for two or three weeks or something. And um, after the two or three week expedition was over, one of them came said, I want to talk to you. So this, uh, the, one of the natives came back to, the, to his brother and said, uh, and, and pulled this piece of paper out. And it was all dog-eared and obviously thought about a lot. And he said, uh, uh, you put these lists down. And he, he started listing the animist belief. And he started reading these off, which at least told the guy, you know, we're getting to the language at least. So, yeah, I believe that, I believe this, I believe this, I believe this. But he says, but, but the God that you're talking about, the God of the Bible says this is true, this is true, this is true, this is true. So he said, uh, today I believe the God of the Bible. And he folded the piece of paper up and flipped it over. And he said, what a remarkable illustration of repentance. Because here was a change in understanding. The person has not been yet saved. This is pre-salvation repentance. Because they can't understand the gospel until this happens. So here's a case where all of this was preliminary to the gospel. We don't even get to the gospel yet. Because the categories are so screwed up, any attempt to preach the gospel is going to be totally absorbed in, in their own framework. Remember the illustration we gave the last couple of years? The interior decorator, you've contracted with a guy to come, and he shows up with a bulldozer, and what he wants to do is not redecorate the house. He wants to tear it down, rebuild. That's the example of the Word of God. If you want a biblical counterpart to that, 1 Samuel 5, where the uh, ark of Yahweh gets hauled into one of the temples, and all the gods fall down because God is not going to be posted up alongside of another collection of deities. He replaces all of them, or he's not going to be part of the collection. And that's the God of the Scripture. And that's what's so offensive about biblical faith, and you as a Christian are going to bear that offense. People are going to be offended because the Bible is an exclusivistic faith. There's no room for any other opinions. And we live in a democracy... And there's something about the democratic spirit, while it's, it's somehow related to man's ability to choose, it's also related to a satanic concept. And that is the idea that everyone's opinion is equally valid. And that's not true. 
God's word is not put alongside of Satan's word. That's what Eve tried in the garden. She tried to take the democratic approach to see if God's word said, you will die, and Satan's word said, you will not die. And in a democracy, all opinions are equal, so therefore they must be of equal authority. So she and her husband decided to try an experiment to, see, to test to see which way the democratic vote should turn out. And they found out, and we're bearing the results of that experiment in democracy here all the way, you know, centuries later. All right, let's turn in our Bibles tonight to uh, Acts 17. And we're going to go through an example of Paul working a street confrontation. What he's doing here, actually, is employing the structure of the Book of Romans. We won't get into that part tonight. All I want to show tonight is something more limited. I'm going to go through Acts 17, and we're going to look at how Paul approaches a profoundly pagan group of people. Keep in mind that this occurs in Athens. And Athens was one of the intellectual centers in the ancient world. Uh, Jerusalem, you could say, is one. Tarsus was another intellectual center, by the way, and you know who came from Tarsus. Tarsus was a university town. Alexandria had the largest library the world has ever seen. Sadly, some of the Christians in the second or third century torched the library. Um, that library is a, was a profound place. And Athens, of course, was an intellectual center. It was the place to be as far as uh, ideology and philosophy was concerned. There were four philosophical schools at Athens. I'm telling you this to show you that Paul, being from Tarsus, knew very well his target mission field. And I want you to watch how he, how he targets the Word of God. And he's got to compete with four strong pagan viewpoints that are circulating there. Plato taught at Athens. Plato was the father of idealism. Aristotle taught there. He had a mix of the, the, the many, the one and the many. Then there was Epicurus. And he was the one who argued uh, toward um, chance. And then there was Zeno, whose argument, if I recall, was more toward fate. So he had four basic philosophic schools, and there were dozens of others. In fact, they had so many viewpoints in the city of Athens that one sarcastic Roman poet, Petronius, has said, it's easier to find a god in the streets of Athens than it was to find a man because it was a polytheistic city made up of viewpoint after viewpoint but the point was that these people were thinking these are not stupid people and tonight as we go through Acts 17 if you are taking notes take this note down here is an example from the word of God that ancient people weren't stupid because when the Bible is presented, oftentimes somebody will say to you, oh, you don't believe that. That's some ancient book. And with the ancient people were superstitious and ignorant. 
In other words, there wasn't healthy skepticism in the ancient world according to these critics today. Well, those critics themselves are ignorant because it's not true. The, the skepticism was profoundly developed in Athens. Profoundly developed. Paul's dealing with it right here in Acts 17. You cannot say that the ancient person was more gullible than we are. I mean, I'll bet you they had less lotteries than we do. The, the ancient people were not gullible fools. In fact, where do we get the idea of doubting Thomas? Right in the inner circle of the disciples, the apostles. So the point we're making here is this. The Word of God originally had to come against skepticism in the first generation. So don't tell me that the Word of God has never had skepticism until some sidewalk expert walks up to us now in the 21st century and he thinks he's the first real skeptic. You know, there wasn't any skepticism before he, wrote, he you know, came into your presence. So just we can, we can get away from that. That's not true. That's false history. In fact, it's a smear. It's a smear against every person who lived in the ancient world. That this person, sidewalk expert, is smarter, better educated, and less gullible than they were. Not necessarily true. Okay, let's look verse 16. Paul was waiting at Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. And he was looking at the temple structures. He was looking at what tourists declare to be uh, aesthetic values, uh, objects of aesthetic value. Now you don't read in verse 16 as he looked at the art forms and the cultural forms of his time that he thought of it as uh, articles of aesthetic value. Paul didn't look at art and literature that way. Paul looked at art and literature theologically and he would not go on a tour bus through Athens saying, oh, isn't this beautiful? Isn't this temple wonderful? Isn't this wonderful architecture? He would say, that is a lot of vanity. That is garbage. Oh, people be oh, how provincial of this Jewish man to, to pronounce our wonderful Greek architecture as garbage. But you'll notice the reaction here in verse 16. The reaction is to the Greek art. So in art appreciation, theology accounts. And see that in any art appreciation course you ever take, that's the furthest from the classroom you'll ever think of. Is something theological is going to intrude in a, in a course on literary analysis or artistic appreciation. And yet here we find him uh, angry because he's looking at the art forms of a pagan culture. He was, verse 17, he was reasoning in the synagogue and, uh, and so on. And then in verse 18, and oh, notice in verse 17 also, he was in the marketplace every day. So he was arguing the gospel. And, you know, people say, well, you know, two things polite people don't do is talk about politics and religion. Well, Paul talked about it quite freely, and he did it every day in verse 17. One wonders what the ACLU would have to say about this out in a public place. 
verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. So see, now here's some of the smart guys. So Mr. Modern Know-It-All, who thinks the scripture is being presented to ancient, stupid, gullible people, who's talking to him here in verse, verse 18 and 19? Now, what you want to notice about is how they perceive things. Their analysis of Paul in verse 18 provides us with a very interesting um, maneuver. And it's a maneuver that you had best, uh, and all of us had best understand. Um, the, the maneuver is one of a strategic envelopment. In other words, either paganism is going to absorb what you say and explain you and what you say and your message in terms of pagan values and pagan viewpoint. Or you and the Christian position are going to have to explain them in the light of biblical categories. Two examples. Gave this last year. Pagan says, after hearing that some lady recently became a Christian, would say maybe something like this. Oh, well, I understand why she became a Christian. I mean, she's always had this fear of the unknown, and uh, she's been through some hard times, and, you know, religion's a nice crutch for her. I can understand why she became a Christian. Now, what's happened here? Nothing supernatural is acknowledged. Not any spiritual reason for what becoming a Christian means. It's just a psychological thing, and has been totally absorbed inside a pagan reference system. Conversely, let's suppose there's somebody out there who has been witnessed to time and again and rejects, and they're sort of laughing at it and so on, and that's the time to say, well, I understand why he doesn't become a Christian. I mean, if I was in his position, faced with a holy God, I'd be afraid of God too. I wouldn't want to come to a holy, holy, righteous God. I'd be like Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes. And that's what, that's what he's doing right now. He's hiding in his intellectual bushes. And, and, you know, you just go right on like this. Nothing has happened. Well, now what have you done? Now you've can circle that whole situation, put it inside of a biblical frame of reference, and walked off. And see, you control the situation because the Word of God controls the situation. So it's, it, it's this constant vying that's going on here. And that's what I want you to see. One agenda or the other is going to dominate. Now, watch what happens here in verse 18. Paul has been arguing with them daily in the street. So they've heard the gospel. At the last end of verse 18 is their rehearsal to us about what they think he's saying. Now watch this. Here you've had the clearest apostle to the pagans in all of biblical history. He has presented the gospel again and again and again and again. But at the receiving end of this transmitted message, here's the way it's coming through to them. He, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange gods because he's preaching Jesus and Anastasia, the resurrection. And the idea is that they heard the word Jesus and they heard the word resurrection. So let's watch this because it's going to happen to us today for sure. So here are two words. Paul probably used hundreds, a vocabulary word of hundreds and thousands. 
But there's two words that really bug these people. And they couldn't understand what is Paul talking about, this Jesus and resurrection. They must be gods. So they deify Jesus and resurrection by trying to classify them somehow inside the pagan system. You see what's happening? The classification tool is being controlled by the pagan agenda. So what they try to do is they, they're saying, well, they must be some sort of gods. Okay? And then from that point, they got a problem politically. Because as many gods as Athens had, if you went in there preaching a new one, you had to get some political permission to do this. And so this is how he got wrapped up and they brought him to the council and, this, and, and they have, have a big hearing. So in verse 22 now, we come to the start of Paul's apologia. And here is this term, apologia, which is for the word which produces our word, apologetics. Please understand that apologia does not mean apologize. That's the English word. Lost its meaning once again. It's like repentance. Can't use it anymore because it's been so defiled. <coughs> Apologetic is the closest thing that comes to our experience every day is a courtroom presentation. When, if you were accused and you hired a good attorney, a defense attorney, the apologia is what he would give to the court. So the apologia has certain aspects. The apologia, first of all, has the characteristic that it is targeted to an accusation. That's why in 2 Peter 3.15, what does it say? Sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready always to give a what? An answer to whomever asks you a reason of the hope that is in you. Be ready. That's the apologia. Give a reasoned defense and an explanation. Now, in this case of Paul, it's against an accusation. It could be a, just a, a question. But it's a question prompted by Christian testimony. No, I mean, gee, I, I see you go through this catastrophe in your life, and I mean, some people commit suicide if they had to go through this, and you survived. And you're going right on with your life. Tell me about it. Well, that's not really an accusation. It's, it's a question that's been stimulated by your testimony. Now you've got your open door. Now we sanctify the Lord God. Now we're ready to give an answer to every man that has a reason to hope that's in us. Well, Paul is ready to give an answer. And what is so nice about this is it's recorded for us, in its outline at least, to what he gave in a public forum at a public hearing. And what's terribly important about Acts 17:23 to 31 is that it shows you his reasoning. How does he reason with pagans? And this is a godly man led by the Holy Spirit. So now we have apostolic precedence in how to construct a defense of the faith. Now what does he do? Let's watch how he does this. If you have a steady Bible, you'll notice that there, uh, you should see a whole bunch of uh, marginal references to the Old Testament. 
So if you don't have a study Bible, I'll try to point these out, but I can't, we don't have time tonight to go through all of them. But if you have a good quality study Bible, your margin should be full of, of references to the Old Testament here. He says, um, verse 22, he starts out, very interesting statement. He stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe you are very religious in all respects. That's how this translation accords it. Very hard translation to do here. Uh, some say superstitious, religious. The point is, the word has kind of like an ambiguity in it in the Greek. So this is kind of one of those things that could be tongue-in-cheek. It's on the surface, he's saying, oh, you're very religious, but everybody knows standing there in the room, it also can mean you're really gullible and superstitious, as he's commenting about all the gods. And see, their objection to him is, what, what, do you got a problem with all this? Why do you have to add another one? Don't we have enough to keep you play, pleased? So this directly introduces his apologia by focusing on their, on their accusation. Their accusation is that there's something wrong with Paul. And in verse 22, it's not too subtle that he says the problem is with you. He does it courteously, and he does it politely, but he doesn't back off. Now, this may strike some of you as not very Christian, but Paul can be a real nasty bulldog when he has to be. He doesn't have to growl. I mean, he just locks on and he holds. Now, watch what he does here. By the time he gets to the end, they really have no defense against what he said because he just torn them up pretty bad. And he doesn't do it because he relishes tearing people up. He does it because these people are pathetic and they need to be straightened out with the Word of God. So that's what he's going to do. So he says, you're very religious in all respects. And, point, and, he, and, and, and it's not just a put-down. He's arguing that at the basic heart of every person, since Adam and Eve were created, we are God-conscious. And we are going to be religious in certain directions. Everyone, in the final analysis, is religious. Now he's going to show you why. Oh, well, I don't believe that. Oh, well, just hold on. He'll show you what, what he's talking about here. Now you say, well, I know people that aren't religious. I will challenge you. I don't think there's a person in this room tonight who can honestly say, if, we, if you think through what Paul's going to do here, that you have ever met a person that is not religious. You can think of the most gross person that you want to. And I'll guarantee you there's always signs of his, God conscious, his or her God consciousness. It may be a simple thing like, well, I think that's wrong. Oh, now where are we getting that from? Sense of conscience. It's a witness of God consciousness. Drug dealers would think if you had a check that bounced, that it's wrong. It's not just that they don't like it. It's wrong. Well, wait a minute. What's wrong here? Well, that's wrong. Well, how, by what standard is that wrong? So, every person at, at base cannot fully eradicate the image of God in them. And so Paul's point of contact now is not going to be a philosophic argument 
with Plato's disciples, Aristotle's disciples, Epicurus's disciples, or Zeno's disciples. It's not a philosophic argument that is slowly moving from one viewpoint over to the other. Watch it. What you're going to see him do in Acts 17 is contrast. What you believe, here's what I believe. You believe this, I believe this. You believe this, I believe this. Now, why does he do this? When we're supposed to, aren't we supposed to bridge the gap with a non-Christian? Yeah. But if they're not aware the gap's there, you've got to show them the gap. You can't bridge anything until the gap's visible. And in a slimy, syncretistic culture, gaps are not visible. These folks will think that what you believe is, is kind of like what they believe. Just, you know, we use different words. Well, you've got to get away from that. We have to separate before we can make the bridge. So that's what this analysis is all about. I observe you are very religious, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of worship, I found an altar to an unknown God, whom therefore... Now watch this. He is striking at the limitations of man's knowledge. He is showing that deep down, these folks finally acknowledge the limitations of man. And I've shown you that chart a number of times about the limitations of man's knowledge. And the point is that you'll never meet a person that doesn't have limited knowledge. And he's, he's seized on this by virtue of the title that's on the statue. The statue was to an unknown god because in the history of Athens, when bad things happened to the city, and they had done obeisance to this god, this god, this god, this god, and they hadn't gotten any relief, they figured out, well, we must have missed somebody along the way, so we'll try to dedicate to an unknown god. You know, in case we miss somebody. Roll call. So that's why they had these unknown gods around to supplement just in case they didn't catch them all the first time around. But having said that, that's a confession they don't know what they're talking about. Because here they are dealing with life and they can't control it and they don't know what, who else is controlling it so they label it the unknown God. So he, that's where he camps. So now watch what he's done so far in verse 22 and 23. Look at the skill this guy had. He probably did this 20 or 30 times. I'm convinced that this was a standard approach after studying the structure of this passage and studying Romans. I think Romans is an exposition of this structure. And I think Acts 17 is an illustration all these preserved so we can actually watch it happening in a street situation. So what he's doing in verse 22, he locks in not to the unbeliever's ideas. He locks in to the unbeliever as the Bible describes him man made in the image of God. So he's pointing right to the heart. He knows what's in the heart of the target. Namely, that what is going to happen here is that we've got to waken up the God consciousness there. And that's what he's driving for, right there. Then he says, here's what you've said. You've admitted you don't know everything. Now I'm here to preach to you. You notice he doesn't say in verse 23 that I'm going to construct a proof for the existence of God. It's not in there. There's no proof for the existence of God because the idea is you can't prove anything until you have the logical structure of the God of the Scriptures. So unless there's the God of the Scriptures, you can't prove anything. So therefore, we're not proving God's existence in terms of some pagan prior view. 
Rather, he says in verse 23, look at this one. You see what I mean by the fact that this guy has such courage to come on in such a profound way? Now, if you were the people in this hearing, how would you like it if this guy gets up in front of you, points to you personally, and says, what therefore you worship in ignorance, I'm talking to you about. Do you feel a little attacked if he came on like that to you, waving his little Jewish hand at you? I bet you you'd feel, you'd feel under attack. And that's good. That's where you should be. This is the word of God going forth. He's got bullets in the gun. He's going to start firing them. So you're going to be ducking. That's good. Shows you it's a good trigger on that gun. So there's tension here. And unfortunately, most of us don't like tension. And it's uncomfortable to be around in a gospel presentation because there's always tension involved. And, and it's unavoidable. All right, let's watch what he does now. Verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven, does not dwell in temple maids with hands. Look at your margins, and you'll see verse 24 takes uh, into account Isaiah 42.5 and 1 Kings 8.27. So right there, he's talking about Old Testament passages. Now, the Old Testament passages that he is dealing with go back to our framework. So let's go back through the framework and watch what he's doing here. Remember we started out, and I tried to redo this, and I can see that didn't work either. This was the first, uh, this was the, uh, the first year that we worked, and we had four events. The creation, the fall, the flood, and the covenant. Remember? And we associated with each one of these events doctrine. Creation defines God, man, and nature. You cannot talk about God if you can't talk about creation. The creation separates God from the creature. The creator-creature distinction. So you have to bring creation into it. If you do not bring creation into it, you will wind up with some synchristic mess where Jesus will be assimilated into some pagan scheme. And see, that's exactly what happens. Is because what was the problem the philosophers heard of in the marketplace? They were saying, what, what, what? Jesus and resurrection. There must be two new gods. Well, now, what does Paul have to do? He can't start talking about Jesus. In fact, if you skim down quickly, it isn't until verse 31 that he talks about Jesus. Only after he's gone through all these verses, quoting all this Old Testament stuff, to people to get defined who God is before he gets to talking about who Jesus is. All right, so we have the creation, we have the fall, bringing in evil and suffering, we have the flood, picture of judgment, salvation, we have the Noahic covenant, showing once again God, man, and nature rule not by natural law, but rule by the word of God. Well, Isaiah 42 that is quoted is actually talking about creation. So where does Paul start his gospel presentation in terms of our biblical frame of reference? Starts it right out with event number one. And here's proof of it. Here he is, verse 24, addresses the first event of our biblical frame. God made the world, all things in it, since he's the Lord of heaven and earth. Then he draws a theological conclusion that, that Solomon did. Why do you suppose he picked up Solomon here in, uh, in um, 1 Kings 8.27? Let's just think a moment. Anybody can think of this. 
Here he is. He's, he's got God. He, he's talked about creation. He's gotten God defined. Probably we have an, uh, an abbreviated version of his sermon. He probably spent some time defining creation for them. And then he draws a conclusion that this God who created all things doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. And that citation comes from 1 Kings. And what does that mean in terms of our Old Testament framework? Well, let's go back to the disruptive kingdom. Remember, we have the call of Abraham. God sets forth a counterculture. God gets this counterculture going. And then the high point of that after the rise and reign of David was the golden era of Solomon. And what was Solomon known for? Culture. So he knows he's in a town of culture. So what is Paul going to do? He's going to take the Jewish epitome of culture, which was Solomonic Jerusalem, look at the conclusions a biblical culture came to while he's talking to a pagan culture. Were there great architectural things in Athens? Yes. Was Solomon's temple a great architectural thing? Yes. He is setting one over against the other. Of all the Jewish references, why did he pick Solomon? Because it was appropriate to pick Solomon against the Athenian architects and engineers. Because Solomon was a biblical architect and a biblical engineer. And when he dedicated the temple, his work, he didn't say, this is going to be a tourist attraction. This was dedicated to the Lord God of heaven. And then Solomon prayed the prayer of 1 Kings 8, in which he said, God, I know that you're not going to dwell in this structure. See this humility? There's humility there. What were the pagan architects and engineers thinking about? They're going to build houses for whom? The gods. Where are the gods going to dwell? Inside the architecture. What a picture of man-made religion. So Paul pits the Jewish idea that you can have a great work of art dedicated to the Lord, but the Lord isn't in the work. The work is dedicated to Him. So, this tension that goes on between Jerusalem and Solomon on one hand and Athens and the pagan architects and engineers on the other was put well by one of the church fathers whose name was Tertullian. Tertullian was very, very famous for this statement. What in he was a great combat guy for the gospel in his day, Tertullian. And he said this, What indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? See, his problem was that there were Christians running all around the eastern end of the Mediterranean at the time Tertullian lived, who were trying to amalgamate the gospel in terms of Greek philosophy. That's where Augustine got screwed up. Read too much of Plato instead of reading about Solomon. What indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? The academy was the place where Plato taught, or Aristotle, it was always called the academy. Our instructions come from the porch of Solomon. Now that was a little tongue-in-cheek jab, because it was the porch of the academy where they used to teach. 
So Tertullian says, yeah, we have a porch too. It's called the Porch of Solomon. See what Tertullian did? Who of all the people in the Old Testament he go back to when he had to get up and make this statement about biblical education versus non-biblical education? Who was the person he picked up? Solomon. Why? Golden era. Know your Old Testament framework. It's obvious why he picked Solomon out. What concord is there between the academy and the church? Our instructions come from the porch of Solomon. Away with all attempts to produce a model Christianity of Stoic, Platonic, and dialectic composition. We want no curious disputation after we have possessed Christ Jesus. And see, that was his plea to let's be biblical and let's not try to amalgamate things. All right, so Paul goes on and he, in Acts 17, proceeds beyond talking about Solomon. He's made the conclusion architecture and human works do not encapsulate God. God encapsulates them. So, obviously, by the time you get to verse 24 in this public hearing, we've had quite, uh, quite some serious separation happening here. You see what he's doing? His God concept, first of all, let's review. Point one about verse 23 is, you guys know God exists. Romans 1. I know you know he exists. I know that you know you believe in absolute truth somewhere when it's convenient to do it. It all comes to the surface. So really what you have here is an accusation of hypocrisy. That every unbeliever in principle has to be a hypocrite. Every unbeliever has to be a hypocrite. Christians may be hypocrites, but it's accidental and not deliberate. But the unbeliever has got to be a hypocrite because he can't erase the image of God in his heart, but he can't let it loose because if it does, it reminds him of the God with whom he has a responsibility. He's got to suppress it. So unbelief is inherently hypocritical. So he unleashes this tension in verse 23 by pointing out to them that they're religious and they are finite in their understanding. And so when you put those two together, you've got to have an absolute point of reference. And he says, I'm going to give it to you. Then in verse 24, he completely severs G-O-D from their understanding to the biblical understanding. We're not ta- if you're going to talk about Jesus as God, let's get G-O-Ds defined properly. So he goes to the creation to define that basic terminology and get that creator-creature distinction functioning. Got to do that. Head of the discussion. Then he concludes, in ter- the theological conclusion of the creator-creature distinction in its architectural and engineering context by noting Solomon. So he's done all that by the end of verse 24. Now, do you get the impression he's not interested in building a bridge? What he's interested is doing exactly opposite to that. He wants to divide. He wants to separate. He wants to create a chasm. Then later on, we'll talk about what we have to do about it. But until the chasm is clear, there can't be repentance because there's not a difference in viewpoint. So let's look for in verse 25. 
Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to life, to all, life and breath and all things. Now, this is taken from several, from Psalms, you can see that. Uh, one of the Psalms he quotes um, is in the context, uh, God says, look, if I were hungry, I wouldn't ask you. You know, your lunches aren't big enough for me. So I'm not going to beg food from you. So now what is he doing? What was the essence of pagan religion? Think about the, from what you might have read about magazine articles you've seen. What do you, what do you see pagans do all the time? They're giving things, almsgiving. They're always doing something. That, and it, it's, it's like God needs this stuff. Now it's interesting that the giving in the Old Testament, while it, yeah, it was directed to God, but where did it go? It recycled back into the welfare of the people. It financed the priests. And what did the priests, were they supposed to do at least? Teach the word of God, administer public health, and all the rest of it. So it wasn't consumed in some stupid religious thing that was socially useless. So God gives to all things. And the doctrine that we're talking about here is that as God is creator over the creation, we've got the creator-creature distinction, as that distinction holds, there's a word that theologians use to describe the, uh, the point that Paul's making here, and it's called this. Aseity. And aseity means that God is totally and completely self-sufficient. He did not have to create the universe. Now, if we said last year and the year before, in certain religions of solitary monotheism, God did have to create the universe. Why? Because if he was solitary, what attribute can he exercise? Love. So if you have a solitary monotheism, you've got an insufficient and incomplete God who has to supplement himself with a created object outside of himself in order to exercise the attribute of love. But the Bible says that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ said that, Father, you have loved me from the foundation before the foundation of the world. So before the universe was created, love existed and was exercised among the three persons of the Trinity can't happen in a solitary monotheism and certainly can't happen in a pagan world, world situation. So, he's just emphasizing again in verse 25 the nature and the character of God. Now, we're going to stop there tonight because next week we're going to go into some more of the things that he's separating and, and defining. And I want to, at this point, review, just in closing, that frame of reference because you're going to see it as he, he works his way through the framework. Once again, Four basic events that we have in the scripture, all covered in the first eight, nine chapters of Genesis. Everybody should know these cold. Creation, fall, flood, and covenant should be second nature to you. And it should also be second nature to you that when you think of these things, and you ought to think of these, think of them as a child would think of them. Uh, they're stories. Imagine yourself there. Think of what the flood must have looked like. Think of what it was like on the ark of Noah. Use your imagination. Fire it up. Use it. Turn off the boob tube. Let this tube start working. And as you think about these events, start thinking about, oh, that event shows 
this is true about my God. And now you're bringing in the doctrine. Creation defines God, man, and nature. The Noahic Covenant tells you how God rules. And you know why we're sloppy here? Let's give a quickie right here. You know this Noahic Covenant? God implemented a verbal covenant that controls the physical, geophysical universe. Right? That's what the rainbow's about. Rainbow is signature. Rainbow is a picture of the throne of God. And yet, why do we go around talking about natural law? What is this thing called natural law? Well, that's just gravity. and That's just electric. It works independently of God? Well, no, but, but God just created and kind of left it there. No. That's not the biblical view of God. There's no such thing as natural law in that sense. It's really a bad term that we've allowed to creep inside our vocabulary, creep inside our mind, and think there are these absolute laws, and then once in a while God will come in there and interrupt them. God works all the time. You see, if you have an idea of locking him out through natural law, uh, why do you bond pray? Because you know, in that view of natural law, natural law by definition is true 99% of the time, and if you're praying contrary to the natural law, you're, there's only a 1% or 2% chance your prayer is going to be answered. So you see it each into your prayer life. So th this is not just theory here. This is practical application. And then we went in uh, and we discussed the second year. We talked about the um, disruptive kingdom. And we said that this dis kingdom is always disruptive. Paul's disruptive in Athens, in Acts 17. Anytime you open your mouth about the gospel, you're a disruption. Why? Because the world's fallen. The enmity, the, war, the mind of the flesh is enmity against God, not subject to the law of God. And so it's created this culture, the fallen Noahic culture, the paganized culture. And we come along talking about the Lord and the gospel, and we're disruptors. So we have to understand we are going to be perceived as disrupting people. And that's just, hey, that comes with the, comes with the goods. Then we saw the last half of the Old Testament, the king's discipline. And we said that there you have the fact that, that the God is serious with his own chosen people. They mess up. They get spanked. They get chastened. God did not rule the Jewish kingdom by Dr. Spock. He ruled it with a paddle. Now, I can just see some lawyers interpreting this. Can't you now? They say, oh, you know that Old Testament? You know, you look at the Old Testament and, and uh, that's abuse of the elect. That's abuse. And it's pretty heavy abuse. You know what happened down in here with the exile. But why? Because to separate good from evil is painful. And if we're on a program where God says it's going to happen, it's just like the drill sergeant in basic training. In six weeks, you will be trained. And you can enjoy it. Or you can have a miserable experience. But in six weeks you will be trained. And that's the way God works in history. He has a goal of history, and we can apply brakes and destroy our tires, 
or we can let it roll. But whatever we do, God's will will be accomplished in history. Then last time, last year, we went through the Lord, person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we went through the various doctrines associated with the birth, life, death, and resurrection, and we got into some advanced stuff last year. Because now this creator-creature distinction is united in one person in something called the hypostatic union. Jesus Christ as the creator and the creature in one person. Then we went into the life, and we went into certain things that now, this year, when we start saying about the church and the life of Christ, that is going to depend on this. We talk about Christ's life. It's not just a sweet little devotional term. There's some pretty heavy stuff. Remember, we had some Q&A about Christ's impeccability and infallibility. All that's coming up now to the church age. And then the death of Christ, the substitutionary blood atonement, and that was not easy when you start thinking about, well, who's covering the atonement. And then resurrection, which is glorification. So we're going to move this, this year into the church. And in doing so, we're going to utilize all the doctrine that we've had to date. And I want to start in the first few Thursday nights working our way through Acts 17 because keep this in mind, Paul confronted unbelief this way. We can do the same thing in our hearts with unbelief. When the fiery darts of the wicked one come against us, you treat it just like you would a, a pagan loudmouth. And you go through the same defense, the same drill, the same parts of the framework, the same Bible doctrine. Boom, 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 because it's the same war. It can go on inside your heart. It can go on in the exterior, external world. But you go on, it does. All right, next week we'll cover, we'll, we'll work further into Acts 17. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We ask that your Holy Spirit take these things of the Scriptures and bring them to a, a living faith in our hearts. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.